Hello and welcome to Carbon Dialogue, a forum to discuss all things sustainable. I'm your host Siddharth Das Gupta, bringing you green perspectives from industry experts, academicians, and seasoned practitioners. Carbon Dialogue aims to break down pressing issues in the climate space and understand the solutions needed to tackle them. As an avid learner of the space, I want to reach out to all the curious souls who want to make a difference and be more conscious. Let's change the world one conversation at a time. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining today's episode. Today, we have a very interesting guest coming straight from World Bank Corridors. His name is Marcelo Esteavo. Marcelo is the Global Director for the World Bank Group's Macroeconomics, Trade, and Investment Global Practice, acronym MTI. In this position, Marcelo leads a large team of uh, country economists, macroeconomists, and fiscal policy, debt, and macro modeling experts. He's also responsible for overseeing the delivery of the global analytical work on macroeconomics, fiscal policy, and debt policy. For coordinating the strategic direction of MTI and implementing it, for helping to shape and oversee MTI's country and regional programs, and for mobilizing staff to work more effectively across equitable growth, finance, and institutions, and other global practices along with it. Before joining the bank, Mr. Esteavo was Deputy Minister for International Affairs at the Ministry of Finance in Brazil until end of December 2018 and served as Brazil's G20 Deputy. He also served as the chairman of the board of directors for the new development bank, NDB Shanghai, and members of FUNCEF's board of directors. Prior to this position, he worked at Tudor Investment Corporation as the chief economist for their Northern American and Oceania practice at the International Monetary Fund, IMF, as a mission chief to Peru, Nicaragua, Barbados, and deputy chief for regional studies division the North American Division and the Latin Caribbean Division after working on several European countries and the Euro area and at the Research and Statistics Division on the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. as a researcher and member of Green Book Forecast Team. Marcelo holds a PhD in economics from MIT Cambridge and has published extensively in referred journals, books, policy reports and the print media. And I would like to comment here that if any of my listeners who claim to be economics, macroeconomics or microeconomics enthusiast, and they haven't read anything from Marcelo, then they must be living under a rock. They're actually missing out a lot what he thinks and how his thinking has been really shaping up. So I would strongly recommend to all my listeners to go to the World Bank portal and check out the blogs, what Marcelo has written over the years and months. So thanks a lot, Marcelo, for joining us today out of your busy schedule. I know it's been end of calendar year and uh, I know there's a difference between end of calendar year and end of World Bank year because me having worked with the World Bank in my first part of my professional life, it was a little bit of a shock for me that the year is not ending in December, but the year is ending the next year. So it was not even the financial year, what the rest of the world thinks. But then I feel that still you will try to get some time off and with your family and you'll make sure that you make the most out of it. So thanks a lot, Marcelo, once again for joining our episode today. I would like to know how exactly you are treating the end of the year before we straight away dive into our episode today. Thanks so much for the invitation, Siddharth. This has been a, such a tiring year. So many things has happened. And we came exactly after a major pandemic. 
I don't know if you remember, but as we are ending 2021, there was some optimism, I myself included. Not that 2022 would have been a fantastic year, but that we are getting out of the pandemics and uh, economies were accelerating. There was an issue of inflation, for sure. Inflation was high. Some central banks had already raised their policy rates. You had the Federal Reserve signaling that was going to raise policy rates. Mortgage rates in the U.S. had doubled from June to, say, January 2022. So there were signs that there would be tighter financial conditions, but those were coming from a position of strength. Basically, that's because the economies were booming. Unemployment rate, I think, in December 2021 was 3.9% in the U.S., which is very low. Now, by the way, it's 3.7%, so continues quite low. So there was a feeling, I think, that we are coming out of this in a position of strength. That let's just manage how much strength we have in the economies around the world and also manage inflation risks. Then February 24th happened. There was a brutal invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia, and the year has changed significantly. That was really a watershed. Because um, I don't know if you remember, but during the peak of COVID, there were all these uh, supply bottlenecks that were happening. That's because people are basically not offering the labor supply. So there's a big decline in labor supply in many countries. And uh, also there were issues of production, because if you're not producing, say, computer chips, you cannot build computers. So there was all these bottlenecks appearing. But by, like I said, by the end of 2022, most of them were disappearing. Now, with the war in Ukraine, these bottlenecks appeared again in many ways, in particular on the energy sector. So prices of oil went up, price of gas went up brutally. In particular, Europe is quite dependent of gas from Russia. The whole world is depending on gas from Russia because gas is used to produce fertilizers. So there was that issue of, you know, there was some bottleneck in the production of fertilizers. Many parts of the world were suffering from lack of access to wheat and to other grains because both Russia and Ukraine are relevant producers of grains. They are not extremely important in terms of the worldwide uh, trade flows, but for these key things, they are quite important. So that started another mechanics of supply shock, oil and gas permeates the whole world economy, prices went up, governments begin getting worried of how much they are going to accommodate this price increase. By that, what I mean is central banks are not going to change monetary policy because that's a one-off supply shock. If that does not affect whatever was already priced in the market in terms of inflation expectations, there was no reason to react to that. That was one train of thought. Another train of thought was, is something temporary? Maybe you can just subsidize consumption of these goods temporarily because soon the price is going to come down. So there are all this, this is all uncertainty. These are arguments, countries doing different things. And while this is happening, economic activity suffers. So there was some, some impact on economic activity. There was some influence on overall price levels. And central banks, certainly the U.S. Federal Reserve, had signaled a tighter monetary policy going forward. So that really colored 2022. So it was a year that we thought it would be in a kind of a bonanza year, 
the global economy booming, and we try to manage this boom, telling fiscal authorities to fill the, the cushion with feathers, if you want to call, or something, so that you have fiscal power to combat the next crisis. But then what we got was a crisis in itself. And if anything, some fiscal authorities were like wondering if they should spend more money subsidizing consumption of, say, the poor or protecting key parts of the productive sector for these increasing energy prices. That has colored the whole year, and we are here right now. At the end of this 2022 year, the challenges are many. The outlook is not great for 2023. I do think that we are going to see somewhat of a recession across the world. It doesn't look like it's going to be very deep. And we have had in history other recessions that were quite shallow. If you look at the U.S. business cycle, which being such a large economy kind very often gives the tone of recessionary forces around the world. In the early 2000s, in 2001, there was a recession that was output barely declined in one quarter and a little bit in 2002. Actually, September 11, 2001 did not cause a recession, which was remarkable, actually. There, there was something that was already happening because the Fed was had hiked rates end of 2000 and 2001. And also at the beginning of the 1990s, there was also quite shallow recession there. This may, I think this is going to be more of the same. And the forces behind that is this tightening in monetary policy that we've seen in the U.S. will have an effect on economic activity. It's already having an effect. We don't see that effect in labor markets, basically. Unemployment rate has increased a little bit from the bottom of 3.5 to 3.7. It's probably going to increase more. I do not see increasing well beyond 5%. And, and you need to be clear in your mind that these are very low rates of unemployment for historical perspective in the U.S. Also across the world, there is some preoccupation vis-a-vis -vis China, which is the second largest economy, is a huge economy. They are now opening up to more economic activity, which will help, which will help economic activity. China has been underperforming because of the zero tolerance for COVID policy, which now is being loosened. But as they loosen this, there will be an increased rate of uh, contagion in China. There'll be death in China, so it'll not be easy. That's what we learn across other countries. So maybe the first quarter of this year is also going to continue to be hard in China as people kind of adapt to the new circumstances. But after that, the Chinese economy should come back growing. So it's probably what you're going to see is a first half of 2023 that is weak with a second half that is strong. The big question mark for me is Europe very dependent on gas and oil from Russia. They have been trying to manage this through some subsidies and price caps, which was just passed. Uh, there was an agreement a couple of days ago on that. And uh, But everything depends a lot on, is this winter going to be very severe in Europe? Or is this war going to last forever? And there's just so much, say, that the European Central Bank can do because that's a supply shock. If it's a permanent supply shock, People need to change behavior, change the way they consume and act. There's just so much monetary policy can do against that type of permanent supply shocks. So Europe, I think, is a region to be concerned about, I think, more than the others. And we can talk about developing countries, which is what occupied most of my time. They are the big challenge for the world community. 
is exactly what to do with countries that are high risk of that distress, and there are many that are. You saw the Ghana, for instance, just defaulted on its debt service payments last week, which is very serious. It's not the only one. We saw Sri Lanka in the first semester of this past year. Many other countries are in trouble. These are not huge economies, but they are important economies. And there are many people living in those countries. We haven't had a major, large emerging market going down, and which is good news. I mean, in particular, if you look at Latin America, the shocks that that continent faced in 1980 really brought the continent to its knee. And there was a lost decade, and it was awful. In some countries, I think in Peru, actually, GDP declined by 15% in that decade. In other countries, just it grew very little. So we do not see much of that now, and that's just a testimony for how monetary policy, fiscal policy, structural policy progress so much in Latin America. That So those countries are relatively protected, although there are many problems in the continent, like domestic fiscal problems in Brazil, some balance of payment problems in Chile and Colombia, but the authorities are acting on these problems. So if you do not have major emerging markets going into crisis, some are surprising. I mean, I'm quite surprised that Turkey hasn't suffered more because of the way they are doing macro policies there. But anyway, but it hasn't. Then I think those emerging markets and developing economies, they are smaller, although quite relevant, will cause regional problems and will cause problems for key, some creditors, and, but it's not a world, quote unquote, that crisis that you are going to be facing. So everything depends on what's going to happen with large emerging markets and um, going forward. Whenever I've listened to you, while I know a lot of stuff, but coming from the way it comes from you, the different perspective, the way you make things understandable in the very layman language, it's quite hard hitting. And more so because this is like, we need some people like yourself who can actually show the mirror in the most truest form possible. I totally agree with you. In fact, I was just talking to one of the professors at Columbia University. So they work very closely with the Center for Global Energy Policy, CJEP, and Earth Institute, which works for NASA. So it's like a tech and policy getting fused together. So CJEP takes care of the policy part and Earth Institute, while working with Lamont Doherty or NASA, they take care of the prediction part. So for example, there would be a, a thing like prediction of flash floods in Latin America. So NASA is working with Columbia. Now that particular study will be taken by somebody in CJEP who's a public policy or a macroeconomist and looking through the lenses of what exactly can a macroeconomist do. And so I was asking that how exactly they would, they, they would see based on their experiences, what's happening in Europe and would this crisis be only 2023 or would it be spill over to 2024, 2025? Because this cannot stop that. Just like the way you said, you no one knows when this war will end. Uh, will it be like longer than this? A lot of uh, domino effect is coming from other economies as well. Europe is right now in an extreme challenging situation, but will that situation be short-lived or will that have multiple effects? It was very interesting to know from people coming from that world, coming from the climate change and the tech part. And right now listening pretty much the same thing from your end, but from a different perspective, it just makes things even more clearer. So... I think I totally agree with you. You also mentioned that the recession will hit us 
or maybe we are already living through it, like the initial phase of it, but would not be as severe as 2008 or any of the recent past. So it will just come and go. So your take is it shouldn't be creating that big of a dent till the time it stays and well it, when it goes. So the after effects would not be so disastrous as it was in 2008 because 2008 was a sudden thing. In 2022, we are living while we are trying to thrive out of it. So do you think it will be not as harsh as 2008, right? No, not, mm. not even close. 2008 was a very specific situation. We can talk for forever about 2008. I was actually heading good part of the IMF work on the U.S. economy during that time. That was a completely different situation. There was a major financial crisis. You had very large financial institutions going down. If you remember the whole sequence, mm. start with BNP Paribas in the late, late 2007, basically not closing some funds. Then you had Bear Stearns going down in the first half of 2008. Then you had Lehman breaking in, in mid-September 2008. Then you had AIG being intervened by the Fed. This is this is a major, this was a major financial crisis. The last time they had something even, something like that happened was during the Great Depression in 1930. Mm. The depression was more serious, but it still was quite serious recession. And what we saw in 2020 was even deeper, actually. Was 2020 recession was quite deep, and you got out of it, it was a V-shape kind of mm. event. But we, are, we, we don't have anything like that now, not even close. What we have is the Fed adjusting monetary policy. You see some signs that the labor market is slowing down some, in particular in the supply of vacancies, what for, you know, the jobs that are being advertised. Unemployment rate hasn't really moved much yet. It's probably going to go up some. But if you are able to get a lot of the adjustment through this supply of jobs, let's say, then the unemployment rate does not need to grow as much. I do think the unemployment rate needs to go up to curb inflationary pressures because that's a mechanism that is going to affect excessive wage, short-term wage demands. We know that wages go up in a healthy way when productivity goes up. So that's the idea. If you get some disorderly increase in wages and price, you just get inflation. Nobody wins. So whatever you get in terms of wage gains gets corroded by increasing prices. So for you to curb that process, you do need the unemployment rate to go up. By how much? That depends on how the demand for labor is also going up. So if that can slow down significantly and then will affect the unemployment rate in a way that is not too severe, you have my scenario. And even if you have an unemployment rate, say, growing to 5%, it's much higher than now. That's not, and I think the average, I haven't checked, but I think the average unemployment rate for the U.S. for the last, I don't know, 60 years, it must be something like six, six and a half or 6.2 or something like that. So I haven't done the calculation. But so this is not a serious recession. That's a slowdown. And if you measure recession by declining GDP, it's possible that you're going to have one quarter of a negative number for GDP growth, or maybe two in the first semester of this coming year in the United States. In other countries, it will be different, but you know. Uh, but the, the issue that when you begin to talk about other countries, you need to really understand the reality of each of the countries. 
Do we tend to focus more on the U.S. because we live here? It's a very important economy. But we can go in details on other parts of the world. And what you see is, I'm quite amazed. I'm old enough that I remember monetary policy in the 80s and 90s and also fiscal policy. I do see a big progress in that. And I think that's why, even though we have such severe shocks in 2008 and in 2020, we kind of survived. Uh, I just want to remark that in 2008, most of the problem that led to that recession was really through the financial supervision side. I don't think maybe one can quibble about monetary policy or fiscal policy doing this and that, maybe better, but it was really a failure of supervision in the origination of bad mortgages in the United States and how they were being repackaged by financial institutions to try to minimize risks, but didn't work. That's not a story about monetary policy. Again, even though one can quibble about some mistakes in monetary policy there, I do see that there has been a lot of maturing in the way we do macro policies in the world. But it's remarkable, by the way, how the continent and the euro area in particular, but the continent as a whole, adapted to the shock from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I thought it would be a much worse situation now, but they were able to kind of accumulate gas reserves, they are able to try, they are trying to manage consumption. And so I'm quite impressed. It's just at certain point, if the situation gets much worse by reasons that are outside the control of the policymaker, say a brutal winter or something like that. And I haven't looked at the weather forecast. I probably should have, <laughs> but I, I'm actually, I'm curious. I probably will take a look at the forecast for the next month, two months, three months, four months in Europe. I think that could be bad for them. But I'm very impressed on how they are able to manage the crisis. And as you know, some countries in Europe are more dependent on this than others, with France being significantly less dependent on supply of gas and oil from outside, and Germany or Italy much more dependent on Russian supplies. So there's also this discrepancy within Europe of who would be suffering more. And of course, countries that border Ukraine are more sensitive to the inflow of immigrants, to a bomb just being <laughs> misdirected, as you saw in the frontier with Poland. These countries are also in worse shape. So this is really interesting. Uh, while you just mentioned all the uh, flow and the series of events, I just uh, was thinking that what's happening other than whatever we just uh, heard from you is also that uh, a certain part of the world like is also going a little wonky because uh, the major cryptocurrency trade falling down, the FTH got, it's just one of the major financial frauds in the recent history. That happened. And then Credit Suisse is also going through a sort of a turmoil in their lifespan. But considering all of this happening while we are going through trying to fight through the, the entire war, we are also trying to come out of the pandemic going towards endemic. While all of this is happening, I feel, I mean, this is something which comes organically to anyone's mind that on the same line of thought that the money will be really tight, not just for the organizations, but also for the nations. And it's going to be even more hard for to make sure that the access to finance is more 
accessible. The access part should be really emphasized and really worked upon. While a lot of talks were being held at COP27 around the loss and damages and more money being pumped into different climate funds. But again, how much of a check and balance is supposed to be there or is already there because World Bank is also a part of a lot of uh, climate related funds. And uh, while indirectly trying to help all these economies, what do you think, like coming from a seasoned economist like yourself, what do you think? How should nations prioritize climate change and progress towards decarbonization, considering the entire access to finance is a little wonky right now. It may be a little better maybe in the uh, coming days, but it might just go back again the way it is right now. But I feel that the way economists see this, people like technical people like us, like engineers uh, or people who are working in the climate domain may not have that kind of a POV. So I feel... uh, while climate change is not my problem or your problem, it's everyone's problem. So it cannot be just one country doing a lot of stuff. Maybe India is doing a lot of stuff. Maybe US is also trying to do a lot of stuff, but that's not enough. A lot of other countries need to work for each other. But again, I would like to know your thoughts around it. How do we prioritize climate change during this entire unstabilized and a very wonky world of access to finance? Yeah. First of all, you're right. I think this year is going to be a hard year for developing countries. I mean, in fact, 2023, but also the other coming years, because finance is going to be tighter. Interest rates are going up. They have been going up in 2022. They are going to continue going up as countries have to deal with the inflationary shocks. So there'll be finance is going to be more expensive. Then the institutions like the World Bank, have increased the amount of finance directed to climate policies. Actually, the old bank by far has led in this process with a big increase in lending for climate-focused operations. And this I do not mean just projects, say, of sustainable agriculture or things like that. I mean, all our lending have been going through this, what you call, climate lens. So our big priority is development, is economic development, but with a climate lens. So things like we are cutting any funding to projects that involve producing electricity based on coal. I mean, these things, I mean, the, the old bank is cutting all this and is really helping countries think about ways to develop their economy because our main quote unquote clients are the developing countries. So we do not do policy for Germany. We do do policy for Chad or for Nigeria or for Mozambique, for Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, so uh, or Nicaragua. Anyway, is to think about development in a way that first, it does not hurt their long-term sustainability. So basically helping countries think about investments on technologies and activities. They are not going to be obsolete because the world is moving out of fossil fuel industries. Now, that does not mean that those developing countries should not pump oil from the ground to finance the development. Not at all. They should continue doing that, and we are supporting them on doing that. But we are also supporting them on diversifying the economy to lower their dependence on these resources, in particular because this industry is going to die. Hopefully, that's what we are working for. Think about a strategy for the world, and that's what the World Bank is doing, of, quote-unquote, starving the beast, And how do we start? And the beast is consumption of fossil fuels. 
And how do we starve the beast? Basically, everybody should be pricing right the cost of consuming fossil fuels. So it's not just the cost to fuel your gas, but the impact on climate. And by me, everybody, I mean everybody. I'm talking about Canadians, and I'm talking about inhabitants of Burundi. So all of them should pay the right price for that type of activity. That's how you solve the common good, the common problem of we are all contributing to the heating of the atmosphere on Earth. Now, those are very different cases. Canada is very different from Burundi. So what you need to do is to support inhabitants of developing countries as the price of gasoline, say, let's talk gasoline consumption price, right? The poor people in those countries should be getting a rebate or should be getting a lump sum transfer to help them deal with the increase in their expenditures because price of gasoline is higher. So you are pricing the, your effect on the environment, right? But you are compensating the poor by this loss of income. So these things are quite important. We are thinking about many policies of supporting countries to do that. Canada can do that by itself. The U.S. can do that by itself. Those countries can't. So the international community needs to be increasing concessional lending to those economies, either through the World Bank, which would be ideal because we know how to implement those policies, or in some other way. So that's the first thing. Everybody needs to price right what the activities are causing to the environment. And that's not an issue of level of development. But the ones, the least developed countries should be compensated by pricing that activity right. The World Bank has done a lot of financial engineering to increase our capacity to lever the capital that we get from shareholders to be able to support those policies, but there's a limit to that. So we do need more concessional money coming from the rich countries in the world. Another aspect of this, like I said, uh, because this industry is dying, those countries that have the ability to produce fossil fuels should either be compensated by not producing those fossil fuels, or rich countries should lower their production of fossil fuels to give space, let's talk, let's say, greenhouse gas space for countries like Chad, Nigeria, Mozambique to continue producing oil, gas. And what you need is then for the US, which is the largest producer of oil in the world, or Norway, or the UK, or, or Saudi Arabia, which is also has a lot of money, to produce less oil so these other poor countries can produce more or continue to produce what they are producing, but transfer resources to those countries they are poorer for them to produce, to be able to invest in more diversified ways of developing. This is a very complicated discussion because you need to convince the medium voter in the US, in the UK, in Norway, in Saudi Arabia to agree with that. So I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying it's going to happen. But logically, that is a big development issue. And then you need to deal with the adaptation to the climate shocks that are coming. It seems like we as a community are not doing well uh, keeping the heating of the Earth atmosphere to 1.5 degrees centigrade. That was compared to the temperature before the Industrial Revolution started in the late 1700s. So apparently are going to kind of, maybe not going to 3%, uh, no, to 3 degrees centigrade, but maybe to 2 degrees centigrade. And the poor countries happen to be in areas of the world that are going to suffer the most 
from the effects of this heating. And so we need to be investing on adaptation for those countries, helping them. They are quite aware, they are working hard, but they need the support of the international community. And one of the ways that it can be resilient to the shock is not just through policies that directly help adaptation, but it's by developing, by being richer. We do see rich countries, that much rich persons, much better able to deal with a climate shock than a poor person. If something happened that really mess up the environment for a poor person and it's too cold, they're going to burn rubber, say, to get heat, which is really bad. <laughs> or they're going to do something that because that's what they have in their power. Or they're going to have to migrate because they live in an area that is in the middle of a drought. Look at California. California is like basically, let's say, a beautiful desert, basically. And you have lots of people living there. And I love California. The Bay Area around San Francisco is one of my preferred places on Earth. And it's because people are rich. They are able to build houses in a way that is consume less water. And they are so development is the best way to make developing countries resilient. And we need to close the circle. So supporting this development while allowing those countries to use whatever budget that you have to continue sending greenhouse gas emissions. And the rich countries are the ones that have the ability to pay for that. And that discussion is evolving, but it's still going way too slow. It needs to progress much faster. Wow. I mean, I just can't put more emphasis on the kind of facts you've just positioned that it's developing the developing nations with resilience is the key. And honestly, it's not only that country's job, it's particularly it's the powerful countries, the G7, the G20, who can actually come together and help everyone. In fact, I just read uh, somewhere that I think uh, COP15 just got over in Montreal and it was all about biodiversity. And obviously, let's be clear, climate crisis is a biodiversity crisis. And the overlaps between climate and biodiversity are just I mean, I'm not just evident to scientists and researchers right now. I, I think governments are really taking a note to and showing their real leadership. In fact, I'm really pleased that countries, uh, particularly Italy, the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Germany, Sweden and Spain are making new pledges to narrow the nature finance gaps in developing world, pretty much the middle income and the low income countries through World Bank CIF. So climate investment fund. So it's obviously happening under Mafalda's leadership. And then obviously there are other people, other key characters. But it's so refreshing to see what you just said. It's so important that it's every every developed country has to come together to come out of this climate finance crisis, which is looming large. Honestly, what's being pumped into the climate funds, I feel it's not enough. I feel we are like a couple of billions right now to be actually to be called as maybe 10 climate funds, the 10 major climate funds right now in the world, which is not enough, in my opinion, to even serve the low-income countries. Forget about involving the middle-income countries in, into that domain, where they their emissions is the least. U.S. is emitting the maximum right now. And where U.S. is emitting the maximum, few other countries are actually paying the price for the major emitters. But I feel that it resonates so much the way you just explained that, it, yes, it's just so important. So shifting gears to the energy side, uh, given the global energy crisis, what are the major policies or changes do you think which may need to be put in place for preventing any setback for a country coming specifically from macroeconomic side? 
Also, the developing ones, because a few countries right now, like India, is showing uh, quite a leadership in the past couple of years. They have like overturned a lot of new things. And uh, you must be following the US politics as well very closely. So you see how that synergy between the US and India is also very, very important right now. So I feel that uh, the policy changes made to meet the global energy crisis should be like very specific to for low income, very specific for middle income and very specific for the developed world. So what are your thoughts? What do you think what need to be what are the, those key ingredients which make it a proper to go like a ready reckoner for the policymakers, just to make sure that the global energy crisis goes smoothly? First, again, like I mentioned, is pricing the consumption of energy right. That's important. So the world should not be subsidizing the consumption of fossil fuels. This discussion now is quite important because we do see Europe producing caps to prices of fossil fuels. And those caps need to have a sunset clause that's quite clear. They shouldn't be a policy for the long term. I understand being as like a emergency slash crisis reaction to the war, but it shouldn't be a permanent policy. And then you need to think about how to unwind those gaps soon. And then thinking about giving even more support to alternative source of energy. So that's the first thing. You need to price things right. And carbon price is a key, is a key measure. And again, for you to get to a positive carbon pricing, first just stop subsidizing the consumption of these fossil fuels, which is still happening in many parts of the world, is the first step toward pricing right. Second, you know, we can say, oh, but why don't you increase the price for oil or for consumption to infinite? We can do that because we do not have enough alternative source of energy. They are safe and they are sustainable enough to plug the hole. So what you need to do is to raise the price of the consumption of, of fossil fuels, but at the same time, working on incentivizing in direct ways the production of uh, other technologies that would help the world consume alternative sources of energy in a more efficient manner. So you need both in lingo, in development lingo, you need policy changes and you need development projects that are specific to say, help countries produce solar panels. Or I think about some countries, like actually Brazil comes to mind, they have a very advanced technological process of getting ethanol out of sugarcane in a process that started actually in the late 70s and it was done in a very inefficient manner in the late 70s. There were many problems with the alcohol program in Brazil at that time. But that has progressed and uh, through many, you know, can't summarize a 50-year story here. But now, if you look at the picture now, what you see is uh, a set of technology to produce basically what's a renewable fuel that helps significantly with the greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. If you buy any car in Brazil right now, it can be powered 100% with ethanol or 100% of gasoline or any mix of the two, for instance. And this has been true, by the way, for 10 years. It's not a new thing. So that was an example why a government program, and one can learn how to do that better than Brazil did in the 70s, basically started investing on a technology that at the time was not 
economically viable, but it became economically viable. So one needs to do more of that. And there are several, I'm not an engineer, but there are several projects around the world that goes in that direction. High prices of fossil fuels is a great incentive for those engineers to get their mind working and think about different ways to produce alternative source of energy. There's the whole issue of uh, the reliability of those sources, like wind power is good when there's wind, but when there's no wind, it's not. So there's a whole part of engineer working on how do you store this energy? Or how do you combine this intermittent but sustainable source of energy with more secure source of energy that may not be as good for the environment? But how do you do that optimal combination? Anyway, there's a whole set of engineering problems, and there's a lot of people that are quite smart working on them to solve them. But for that, policymakers need to help, but not subsidizing the bad consumption of energy. So the two need to go together, and you need to have financing for those projects. You need to have financing to compensate the vulnerable and the poor for paying more for energy in the first stage of this process. So you need both. So that's what good energy policy is. I think the other issues are more specific. In the specific region, given the circumstances, here are the challenges, and then one can talk about that. But in general terms, that's what one needs to do. That's really useful to know. This is something which definitely, I'm sure, should be handy to all the policymakers. And I'm sure for some reason, they are not taking any action as well. Few, few countries, I mean, for obvious reasons, we all know that. And it's, it's better not to talk about because every country has their own set of limitations. While they would like to come out of, they would like to do, love to uh, transition. Energy transition is a key thing. There are a lot of limitations for a lot of countries. And I think changes are happening, but in a very slow and a very composed pace. I have uh, like uh, multiple burning questions, but uh, I would rather uh, summarize, like condense all my questions into two different questions. So my next question is around climate change, trade and global production. I was thinking how climate change may shift in the next coming couple of years, maybe in a, I'm not thinking of a, like a 10 year thing. Nobody knows what's going to happen in 10 years. I'm just thinking like a short term, three to five years, how climate change may shift economic activity within, across and between countries and eventually explore the associated implications on those economic growth. Maybe we can cluster it into three buckets, like a low and a mid and the high income. And uh, while doing that, we can do across like how within, across and between countries, what are those shifts within three to five years? What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, if you think about the economic literature in the 1970s, there was a whole discussion about petrodollars. And it was uh, a way of uh, understanding how oil production, basically the location of oil production, determined a lot how capital flows happen around the world. This, we are going to have the same type of phenomenon we already having, but uh, it's going to deepen as we go through this transition. So countries like in the Middle East, their oil producers are in bad shape in the long term. They need to continue working to diversify the economies and invest in other things. And uh, I remember when I was in government uh, in Brazil, I mean, I would get uh, missions from Qatar, uh, Kuwait, all these countries. They want to buy stuff. They want to diversify the investments. And they are right. So there's a whole project for those countries because that industry is going to be dead in 30 years. That's what we are working for. 
we are working for it, is a spoken aim of policymakers around the world because we are concerned about the effect on climate. So those countries need to diversify their activities. I mean, the World Cup in Qatar is an, is an effort to, to do that. The, and they are right. I get very concerned about poor countries. They are very dependent on that industry. So for them, we need to really uh, help them diversify the economy. And that happens by investing in education and, uh, and having you know, uh, economic reforms that improve the functioning of labor markets and product markets. And by, by the end of the day, it's about educating a population that is not very ed educated. So they have their wherewithal to use their creativity to then produce okay. great things. Now, some countries are lucky that they happen to have key minerals for this industry that is coming. You know, we have countries like Peru and Chile, which are rich in copper. Mm. Uh, and copper is going to be a key metal for the batteries that will be needed in whatever mode of energy producing system that you are going to have uh, that is not based on fossil fuels. Yeah. Then there is the cadmium. And, and uh, then you begin to talk. I, I can begin to talk about metals here. They have no idea what they are, uh, but they are very No, important. but I can, I can add there, uh, honestly, because I'm being an engineer, I, I can tell you, yes. I mean, this is in 2022, we are far way ahead with lithium ion and we have to be stuck to lithium ion right now. And there is no way we can get rid of all of these metals like cadmium, like uh, cobalt, like copper, we just cannot get rid of them because we really, the world needs more of it because of the batteries and the huge batteries, which are also needed to actually fuel a lot of other non-renewable sources and renewable sources, both. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. So, so the countries, they are going to benefit significantly. In Africa, there'll be a, a change in the power of countries that are now net oil producers and quite big ones for the continent, even if not for the world. Like Angola is a producer of oil, or Nigeria. We have Chad is a very small and poor country, but produce oil for them matters significantly. We have Mozambique. It's investing tremendously on this huge reserve of gas. So that, and it's already coming is already being produced. And gas, uh, the produce of gas are a bit luckier because that's seen as a transition fuel because it's less pollutant, even though it's not the final. Uh, we, we do want to stop using gas as well, liquefied gas and, and natural gas. But then, so some countries have that type of natural resource, but the ones that have lots of metals that are important for this transition are going to be doing better. And then there'll be this change in the allocation of capital with investment flowing away from, say, big producers of oil. And while that that industry dies and then investments, long-term investments in that part of the world are going to be less lucrative. So that's going to determine, there'll be a different set of capital flows that's not going to be like the petrodollars in the 1970s, it's going to be like, I don't know, the mineral dollar, the metal dollars of the next 10 years, there is, there'll be an issue in terms of adaptation for job categories. Some jobs are more at risk of losing relevance than others. And some, and that's going to imply bigger structural change for some countries than, than for other countries. And I think being already aware of that, and that some researchers have built matrices of job proximity. So say, if you are a nurse, Chances are you're not going to be hit by this. If anything, maybe there'll be more demand. Anyway, anyway, so that's one example. Now, if you work on oil wells, it's something that's very specific. 
you are in trouble. And then there's everything in between. So how to think about the matrix of workers you have in your economy and how to adapt them to the new reality. And the speed that you want to do that, because you still need oil right now, is going to be quite relevant. And I think the best way of plan for that is not to over-engineer that, because then you are bound to be wrong. It's basically to give people the resources to train themselves with general skills, first of all. It's quite important, including because of the IT revolution that has been going on for the last 40 years. So people that have more general skills tend to be more adaptable to changes in labor market conditions. So invest in education again, and everybody should know how to program a little bit. So having those skills is also quite important. I think engineers are always going to be needed. So that's one, one profession that is always going to benefit from these transitions. And being able to rethink the way you think about production process would be quite important as well. But there's no question that there'll be winners and losers. And then the job of policymakers, including in the international agenda, not just national policymakers, is how to compensate the losers so that we can do this transition to a better world in a way that is smoother. So being able to compensate, to speed up this transition is quite important. And this is quite live in countries that are so dependent, say, on the coal industry, because it's happening already. You see happening in West Virginia, in the US, you see as a big issue for Poland that, that has many steel coal miners and parts of Germany and, and you know in many places, this is still a big issue. I think you've just uh, mentioned all those points, which are uh, pretty much uh, very topical, given what's happening right now. This just broadens everyone's horizon. I hope who already are aware of the topic or even not aware of the topic, the way you have explained the entire dynamics of it is just too too easy to absorb. And it's, as I said, it's hard hitting and it's people, even after listening this, if they do not act, then there are bigger reasons for them not to act upon. Coming back, I think it's like, I would like summarize this into my, try to summarize in my own words. So while we have talked about different challenges and crises happening simultaneously in this current working world where we are right now, while the virus is still lurking around, it might come again in a ferocious way. Nobody knows. I mean, by the time the virus was almost gone, India would have hit by a Delta strain, which would devastate the entire freaking economy. So we don't know. The virus is still around. And while everything is happening at a very wobbly pace, the labor and the capital reallocation within the contours of climate change Will that also suffer considering there will be a lot of jobs as per you, there'll be a lot of jobs which will be obsolete. And obviously that's the law of the nature. Uh, change is the only constant. And I think if this is the constant, then obviously there'll be few jobs that will going off. But then at the same time, there'll be few jobs around climate change or maybe few other, other domains which might just pop in. There will be a lot of inflow of jobs as well. So I was just wondering about the labor and capital reallocation in terms of the countries. And finally, while you are also following the U.S. politics very closely, what are your final thoughts around the U.S. politics playing a role into the global climate change environment? What exactly U.S. should be doing ideally right now, maybe and in the next couple of months or years? And also, uh, what are your views around labor and capital reallocation within the contours of climate change? I would say 
we need stronger international agreements. We need specific ways to transfer money to developing countries to finance this climate transition. Many of them are not prepared for it. They are aware of the problem, but they have more immediate needs. If you tell a poor person that I'm going to raise the price of gasoline and that what that implies that the person is going to have less money to eat because it needs to be transported, it's a catastrophe. So you do need to be able to compensate them. And for that, we, we certainly the World Bank, but other organizations need the resources to think of policies and financing them to help this transition to happen. I think the big fear of uh, policymakers in rich countries is that developing countries make the same mistakes that they did, they made in their development. That is just keep growing without thinking about the consequences for, say, mother nature. But you need to be aware that you cannot even in an ethical manner ask those countries to do anything different unless you compensate them because they have you know, mouth to feed, people to dress, and they need housing, and they need bridges, and they need uh, factories, and all that stuff that basically powered the economic development of uh, the country that are now rich. So this, again, I've said before, that's fundamental. For that, you need stronger agreements. We need to more finance for those international organizations that are fully committed to that, like the World Bank but there are others. And then the political, you talk about politics. The politics is to convince the medium voters in rich countries to basically being taxed more to be able to transfer money outside the country. And I know this is really hard. You need to convince the average voter in the Midwest of the U.S. that they need to pay a dollar more for a gallon of gasoline to fund this agenda. But you have to do it. So that is fundamental. So I think domestic politics is really the big bottleneck here. It's what's fundamental that needs to be done. That is going to happen through education also of the population, to the realization that we are all very rich in these countries. I'm here talking about the comfort in my house in Arlington, Virginia, and why some people in the rest of the world do not have a house to live in. So we are extremely rich, and we can fund this agenda without any major sacrifice. That's what's a bit frustrating. It does not require major sacrifice, but it requires that every citizen of this country, of, of a country that I love, the United States, to say, say, yes, I'm committed to this agenda, and I'm going to fund it. And that's true for every country that is above some level of income. That includes many middle-income countries. So without that, you are not going to be able to make a serious dent, I think, in this policy. But anyway, but things are moving in the right direction. You talk about COP15 in Canada, and it, it is true that there was an agreement on biodiversity. In COP27, there was a, a commitment to increase the funding for developing countries. Let's see if that's going to happen. So I think the movement's in the right direction. I'm just concerned about the speed of that yeah. direction. And the effect on capital, U.S. capital and, and labor is going to be quite significant if you cannot think creatively about policies to help the losers in this process. And the losers are bound to be the poorer, the people that do not have enough education to be able to adapt themselves to the shocks that are coming. The people that do not have capital to be able to 
redo their house and put solar panels in their roofs. Those are the people that are going to be suffering in this process. So at the end of the day, a climate policy for the world is a development policy. It's about development. It's about economic development, a sustainable economic development. And for that, the rich need to pay for the poor. I mean, I just can't, uh, I was just going through the flow of thoughts and this is something really eye-opening in many ways than one. Uh, yes, uh, I was thinking that the major, major economies would be definitely playing a role, but it's not just them. It's like combined effort and uh, speed is the key, which I feel it might just uh, take up like, uh, speed up in the next couple of weeks. I guess we we had uh, an amazing conversation, a very rich and deep conversation around a host of different topics. And uh, as always, Marcelo, it has been a pleasure talking to you, knowing so many different aspects from your lens, from your perspective. And it's been, as I said, it's been it's been a pleasure. I hope you had a good time with uh, with us. And obviously, our listeners uh, will definitely be able to listen to this one. This is one. This goes live. And uh, I really thank you for your time today and uh, wish you a nice break. I hope you can get some good time with your family during this supposed to be a very cold winter. Uh, let's see how cold would this be? I mean, I'm expecting a white Christmas in New York, uh, but then I'm, I'm not sure whether I'll get a white Christmas because uh, 24th is supposed to be really frigid. Like in Celsius, it goes to minus 15. From where we are right now, we are at 10. But yeah, I hope you get some time off and uh, have a great break and wish you a very, very happy Christmas and a very happy new year. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yes, I'm already having fun. I wish all of you and the listeners uh, a very peaceful and successful 2023. Enjoy the holidays and let's work together to make this world a better one. <laughs> that's that's the key. That's the mantra. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.